What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. I, I got this fancy new Razer camera that has like a selfie, like Instagram influencer light on it. And I was like, I'm going to be real pro. I have I have this light, but it's a USB port, which I can't power it with MacBook Pro, USB-C. I'm done complaining. I but, see. I thought y'all were like the professional podcast. I thought we were the amateurs. Much more set up than this. Just, <laughs> just say Maggie's very professional. It's like I've, I've chatted by. with Amos Maggie before. Maggie is has the magic gear. that makes it happen, right? Exactly. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Beam Radio. I am, as usual, joined by our talented panel of hosts. We have Lars Vickman. Hey, Lars. Hello. We've got Alex Kutmos. Hi, Alex. Howdy, howdy. Steven Nunez. Hello from rural New Jersey. Oh, gosh. Hey, Steven. And Bruce Tate. Hi, Bruce. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Hey, Bruce. So uh, we do have a very special guest today, but I'm just going to hold back for a moment on uh, introducing him and handing it actually over to Bruce, who is our main host for today. Take care of a couple of updates for you guys, our listeners. So as you may know by now, if you've listened to the show before, you can send us your questions on Twitter. We want to hear from you guys. You can tweet at Beam Radio 1. You can hashtag Process Mailbox which we think is an exceedingly clever pun. And uh, ask us anything you want about Elixir and the Beam. And if we pick your question, you will get a free t-shirt and it's a very nice t-shirt. So we do have a question from an audience member that came through. I'm definitely gonna mangle this Twitter handle. Chris Erie, Chris Air 2000? Chris Air 2000, who wants us to tell him about our favorite Beam-based library. Anybody wanna jump in there? I'm gonna go first. I think my favorite <laughs> Beam-based library. Say? is probably oh, no i'm not gonna name any of my own libraries i'm not that self-centered <laughs> no no i know you're not gonna name your own but i still know what you're gonna say let's hear it i was probably gonna say telemetry i, oh I love so shocked yeah okay okay so i, I did uh, <laughs> i did uh, meet expectations there i think it's my favorite library just because uh like it really unifies the ecosystem in that how all the libraries have a consistent interface how to export all of their internal workings and it's not really a mystery as to how to get those out. I love telemetry and all things about it. So I actually am going to jump the gun and I am going to introduce our very special guest because he's nodding his head so aggressively that I want to hear what he has to say about this. So Bruce, I'll let you give the full introduction when we hand it over to you. Or do you want to go ahead and, and do that now? Otherwise, I'll just say, yeah, we'll, we'll hold off on you know all the accolades. But we are joined today by the one and only Chris Keithley. Welcome, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited you're here. Tell us about your head nods. What do you love about telemetry? Oh, no, telemetry was my answer. Like, totally. Telemetry is the most important library that has come out for Erlang and Elixir in the past three to four years. Bar none, 100%, no competition. I, listen, I hear, I hear y'all with your live views and your, and your phoenixes no, I, I and all that. Yeah. Uh, telemetry is the thing. And it's... Uh, it's because it empowers the ability to get all these metrics and stuff, which has not been a totally unified, easy way thing to do before. And like none of that innovation, none of the rest of the innovation happens if you can't put Elixir into production and get monitoring and observability and all that sort of stuff out of it. And telemetry powers all of it. And telemetry is really good too. Like just like the, the smarts that are, it's the, the design I should say is really, really good. Um, I love, the way it's built. Um, I love it so much that I actually ripped out the internals of it and have a, I have a library called Sync Dispatch that I use 
um, for certain things that allow me to do similar telemetry like executions. Um, because I find that just to be like a really cool pattern. Um, and I think that's, that's really, there's a lot of power in how telemetry works. And I think actually we could benefit from having, um, a generic reusable thing like telemetry. So yeah, telemetry is great. It's awesome. Yeah, I would actually also choose telemetry, um, which would be perhaps surprising if somebody like expected me to pick LiveView. LiveView is great. I love LiveView. Read our book about LiveView. But I totally agree that without instrumentation, without observability, you don't put code into production. And we're, I'm all about adoption, frankly. And I think that telemetry is one of the really big reasons in my experience that I've seen Elixir production go so uh, adoption go so smoothly and teams like ramp up so quickly on putting Greenfield Elixir apps into production. But I'm curious, Chris, you say you're really into the internals of telemetry. It's a pattern that you really like. Are you talking about like that whole etsbacked pattern of like mm -hmm. storing callbacks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And doing it all in the calling process, like not mm -hmm. mucking around with like, oh, we've got other processes. We got to copy memory. We got to get over to this other process somewhere and do all that sort of stuff. Like that's none of that's what you want um, in a lot of cases because it's really expensive. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the caveat of telemetry is always, hey, you're in the calling process. So you're blocking the critical path of a web request or you're blocking whatever. So you got to be you got to be cognizant of all that stuff. But the uh, the ability to just grab a function and execute it and attach those functions at runtime potentially and detach them at runtime and like manipulate the, the 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 live system in that way that's a super powerful feature of any production system is the ability to grab levers and start pulling on those levers in production um, that's what gets you out of uh, various problems that you that you're going to see like when things start going going wrong like you need to be able to grab those levers and, and twist the dials to be able to manipulate the running system yeah and i think like it's so extensible too so that if you find that for whatever reason there is something expensive that needs to go down it's trivial for you to async it because you're in control of what that callback function is and it's going to get invoked synchronously but then you can offload your work elsewhere and there's like a really nice api for that which i appreciate yeah, I was going to say the same thing, where it's a lot easier to go from synchronous to async, but going the other way around, it's pretty much impossible. So if you, if you do need to eject and say, hey, this needs to happen out of, out of band with the original request, I have that, that uh, escape hatch. But um, yeah, I like how it doesn't force you to, to have it async from the get-go. Definitely some, some smart people there that put that stuff together. Not another answer that's that's um, really a potential one that I think I'm going to like a lot, and it also is, is a big driver for adoption, and that's Livebook. Um, I think that that Livebook has the potential to completely change the way that that we explore NERFS content. You can imagine just having a, a Livebook book set up with a with a set of of sensors or you know any kind of hardware where you need to kind of pair that with the library, and you know, the problem with with learning hardware is the the same problem as as learning any complex system. It's getting everything established the first time takes a long time. And if you could do that in an exploratory way by taking small steps and actually jumping into the middle of a complex chunk of code and just um, kind of trying things in the context of IEX, well, really, in the context of Livebook, it's it's a really powerful thing. So. I also see this shaping how Elixir is adopted. You can imagine, like, like we have we have all of these um, all of these pages that are are pretty much markdown pages that could be live books that essentially teach basic Elixir. And if if we could open this up to where the first time that you you establish 
um, that that you inter, um, interject a, a lot of friction into the process, the reader is already pretty far down the learning curve. It, it will juice adoption pretty heavily as it's done with the Python community and the Julia community when notebooks were present. I'm gonna say my, uh, my favorite Beam-based library is OTP. I had to be that person. I, well, I'm not kidding though. I actually do love ports. We'll talk about ports for a little bit. Uh, ports are really cool in uh, programming Erlang. Uh, Jerome Strong talks about how uh, the perspective of turning everything into a message is like the key to all Erlang systems. And he does it with WebSockets, right? Something happens on the front end, it winds up being a message to a process, and then it's just another message. It doesn't matter. Uh, I've had a lot of uh, I've done a lot of work with ports and calling out to different processes and basically making them normal Erlang message sending. Um, you know, citizens. And I think it's one of the most powerful bits of the system that you can not have to compromise with how you integrate external programs, different scripts. Uh, if you can get IO, you can integrate it into an Erlang system, like if it was as if it was native. So I really, really like ports. I think I'll go with Site Encrypt, which is a Sasha Urich library, which lets you skip installing cert bots <laughs> so you can just deploy so I, I deploy a fair number of small almost meaningless phoenix applications that i use for sort of day-to-day -day stuff i have one for pulling nerves release updates and stuff for writing the nerves newsletter for example um, and if i want to shove ssl on that one i install site encrypt I do some slight adjustments to my endpoint and to my config, and then it will do the whole let's encrypt dance and get me an SSL cert without me needing Nginx or anything. Uh, I really like that. I like shoving more things into Phoenix. It's, it's great fun. And the library has been very helpful in client work recently as well. So it's a, it's a good one. It's an odd one. Uh, and I don't think it's as feasible in a lot of other languages and a lot out of other runtimes primarily, because it leans on Erlang crypto libraries and the fact that you can just sort of throw up a, a bit of extra HTTP serving or uh, have your plug sort of serve, serve the challenge responses and that fun stuff, and then uh, provide you with some SSL search. It also helps you with getting snake oil search for development and stuff. Very sweet little library. I haven't heard much about it, but I keep talking about it. I think we've heard them from everyone now. So thanks all. Uh, before we get too far downstream into today's episode, we of course like to pause and hear a word from our fabulous sponsor, Graxio. Bruce, do you want to tell us a little bit about what's going on? Yeah. So by the time that this, this conversation airs, we're going to be right in the middle of NX. We're going to be working with Livebook. We're going to be working through the basics of NX with with a way to define numeric functions and tensors and, and essentially how, the, how those things work. And we're gonna be working um, with, a, with partnership with, with Sean who helped to create the library and, and actually contribute some, some notebooks to that project along the way. So we hope to help accelerate the pace of this kind of mind-blowingly fast project anyway. So um, that'll be a lot of fun, come join us. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure I'm not alone in being very, very excited to learn more about these new technologies in Elixir and Graxio is absolutely the place to do it, in my humble opinion. So Bruce, Bruce is our main host, the host with the most for today. We are going to hand over 
the episode to Bruce at this time. We would love to hear from you, maybe a little introduction for our guest, and then tell us about our topic for today. Yeah, so I, I always love to spend time with Chris Keithley because we talk about, and, and we are plugged into very different places of the Elixir, Elixir ecosystem. I'm usually connected to, um, to users that are super early in their adopt, adoption process. The, the software projects that I've worked on have been smaller ones that are kind of nimble and kind of the, the live view world and, and the early adoption world. And Chris has kind of worked on these Elixir at scale and, and, and Elixir um, throwing a lot of complexity around it and, and expecting a lot of productivity out of, out of his teams. Um, but more importantly, um, distributed systems and scale and things like that. And so we always have a, a good time in conversations and, and, um, and we often wind up in, in very different places. But one of the things that we both do that, that I've really enjoyed is that we both kind of entered the Elixir ecosystem and then looked around and found opinions that we liked and that we could trust. And, and we kind of established a base of, of opinions. And, and some of those came from things like Credo and some of them um, came from you know, different blogs and books in the ecosystem. But then we both also established opinions that were that are outside of kind of the published norms. And so we, we tend to do things that work for us and we tend to talk a lot about them. And so today's topic is heresy, not from the standpoint of, of pissing people off, right? But from the standpoint of taking things that work for you and the project that you're working on. So welcome aboard, Chris. I am happy to be here. I don't I mean, I don't know anything about strong opinions that cause controversial feedback at all. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm happy to do my best. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so um, no, I mean, it's been, I think Bruce is totally right. It's been great uh, to come into this ecosystem and to look around, to bring to bear like other ideas from other programming languages, other disciplines, uh, and try to figure out what's what can work really well in Elixir and in Erlang. Like, what patterns can we can we can we adopt that take advantage of all the power that we have? Um, and also, I think uh, in general, uh, throwing out a lot of preconceived notions about that we're that we're all bringing in from previous um, runtimes and previous experiences. Um, so that's that's what I enjoy doing. I enjoy thinking about that stuff because uh, not because I enjoy just necessarily being a curmudgeon, but because like I am constantly trying to find the thing that is going to improve my craft overall. Uh, and that's that's what drives me in a lot of cases uh, to try to like seek these things out. Yeah, I really love that about you. Um, and I kind of love the the idea that you are a curmudgeon. I, I remember when um, when we approached you for a, um, a Gig City Elixir keynote, right? And so um, I said um, that we needed something to close the overall show. So it needed to be something positive and inspiring and uplifting. And do you remember what your, your title for that talk was? Yeah, I believe I pitched you on the idea of uh, the talk that was how I failed to live my childhood dreams. <laughs> yes, yes. 
very Hell. positive, very uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I'm in the back of the room and this, this talk is kind of unfolding and, he, and you know, they, Chris shows this, um, this kind of, um, lunar lander at NASA and it is actually on fire <laughs> and you know the metaphor is that my childhood dreams are on fire and I'm looking at the clock and there's like eight minutes to go and the room is like I'm looking around and they're all crying and then you know by the end of the talk everybody was like smiling laughing and hugging each other and cheering it was the wildest thing that I have ever seen that talk was a ton of fun. I mean, it was, it was, uh, that's a story that I uh, have wanted to tell in some capacity for a while. So it was great. It was an honor to be able to, to say, to, to give that talk, especially at Gig City and in that crowd. And uh, it was perfect. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. So one of the things that we talked about a lot on Beam Radio is the idea of a Phoenix context. And so, mm -hmm. um, I know that um, I know that I've, I've also I, I have these kind of open-ended, you know, single question um, questions that I've been kind of experimenting with on Twitter just to kind of start some conversations um, and see if we can, you know, draw in different opinions from from um, a lot of different, vastly different people. And um, one of the things that that you said on your long list, you you had like a you had like, I don't know, um, 10 or 15 heresies, right? In, in terms of, you said there should be something in there for everybody, right? But one of them was no context. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of fill our users in, what is a context and how does Phoenix use them? For sure, contexts, oh boy. This is the problem is in order to describe what a context is, you you really are, it's such a nebulous word you, that you, really the only definition that you can accept as far as what a Phoenix context is, is the thing that Phoenix generates for you. So like, that's the thing, that's what a context is. It's the pattern of code that Phoenix will generate for you. Um, and in what that what that looks like is when you're using the Phoenix generators and you say, hey, I want to create a blog post and it's going to be in, I don't know, the the content uh, context, it's going to generate a bunch of functions for you. And they're all relatively, I mean, they basically all resemble CRUD operations. Um, they do change sets and they, they, they build out all the scaffolding to support this stuff. They build out getting and like they hide all the repo calls inside of there um, and all that sort of stuff. So that's like, those are what contexts are in my mind. And if you take, and, and, and really, I, I don't think they're anything beyond that. <laughs> like there's, you can't ascribe anything else to them because there's, there is nothing to ascribe. Like there's no there there. Um, you, you have to just say, well, this is the pattern that's been established by Phoenix, right? Like this is what they're called. This is the pattern that you follow. That's what a context is. So when I talk about context, that's what I'm thinking of. Anything else is just a module with functions. And you can you can name it whatever you want, but that's what I think contexts are. And so um, I'm going to throw some ideas out out at you and and see see what you think and where you would go. So what about the the concept of separating um, pure ish and impure functions? Mm hmm. What like generally? What do I feel about that? Yeah, and and in the implementation of the context. I don't. Does do contexts do that? I don't think contexts do that. Uh, between the schema and and the, um, you know, I would say that uh, that within the repos, anything that hits the repo, 
that's going to be um, essentially a side effect. But until that point, um, you're not mm -hmm. actually running the. Um, so basically, you'll build a query and, and the query um, in, in like a, a query mm -hmm. peer module, you run it in the con context, you'll map a schema um, and then um, you'll feed it into a chain set in, in the schema. And then mm -hmm. you kind of access that in the chain set. Um, so what about that concept? Is that valuable or? I think I think like in general, yeah, like separating out pure operations from impure operations. That's that's cool. That's good. Um, and it's useful because pure things, as it turns out, are really easy to I hate this term because it's such a it's so, <laughs> so much nonsense, but it's really easy to reason about. It's like uh, like that doesn't mean anything. That's in the eye of the beholder. Lots of people think like go is easy to reason about. And I'm like, I just see for loops and if error statements everywhere. Like I can't see <laughs> signal in here anymore. Have we transitioned to the go hate part of the podcast? I'm go <laughs> puts the go and okay, go away. Just, <laughs> that's my favorite joke. Chris, I quote that joke of yours on this podcast, like not infrequently. <laughs> Oh man, go. Uh, it's fun to punch up too. So in, in any case, like, I think separating that stuff out is useful because especially when you talk about pure, really pure operations, data transformation, that sort of stuff, super easy to test. You can property-based test it. You can uh, really reason about it. You can talk really concretely about what your, your, imp, your you know, the range and the domain of a function, what they are. Um, those are really useful. You can you can you can rationalize about all that stuff. The problem is we have to do real work, and Erlang is a language that uh, revels in side effects, right? It it just rolls around in side effects. It loves it, and so we're fighting a lot of the language, and in many ways, I think we're fighting a lot of the best ideas of OTP when we like take that to the sort of its like nth degree or like the logical sort of outcome of you know monads or something. Like you you you're hiding too much away uh, from from the from your from your actual system, and it's going to lead you towards designs. But I mean, but that's actually the interesting part, right? The interesting part here is design. Um, so before we even talk about context, like we should level set for a second. What do you think the goal of design is? I ask this question all the time and people, I'm not asking rhetorically necessarily. I'm, I'm asking rhetorically at this exact moment, but I actually want to hear y'all's opinion. Like I ask this question and I get super different opinions. And in, mo and in a lot of cases, I get people who are like, I've never thought about that. <laughs> like, what do y'all think the goal of design is? Yeah, this is the part of the conversation that I really wanted to get get to. I think that this is kind of um, you know, which you know, talk about a, little, a few of the things that we agree on, and you know, with your work on on property based testing and um, our discussions about the 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 where uh, where the value of Erlang is, this is kind of where the conversation goes, right? And so I, I love the um, the idea about starting a conversation on. Um, on what's what is design? What do you want to accomplish um, with design? I want to hear from from um, from some of the other panelists as well. Let me throw out a, a little um, one thing that I hope to accomplish from design is um, is layering complexity, right? Dealing with one bit of complexity at a time. 
I think what I want to accomplish from design is extensibility, by which I mean to say that I think it's really important to design well in as much as you can from the outset so that you can build quickly in a complex domain, especially with, you know, a disparate group of people who these days are like distributed around the world as you move forward. Um, you know, I think that more and more, especially as we work on bigger teams that don't sit in the same room uh, and hang out all day every day, getting a design down that is clean and extensible and allows for a future proof is kind of like a phrase that I hate, but you know, accommodates future growth, I think is really critical. So I'm going to, I'm going to hijack this because I don't know how, I mean, I've listened to the show a lot and y'all are very respectful and like let each other talk, but I'm going to interrogate a little bit. So like when you talk about, um, you know, extensibility, uh, what I hear, and I know, tell me if I'm wrong about this, I'm just going to say what you said back to you is I want to allow for future growth, whether the features change, whether we have new features, whether we have new um, constraints that we're now dealing in. I don't want to limit the ability to support those things without, you know, sort of Herculean effort. So we yeah, shouldn't have to rewrite things to build new mm -hmm. things. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that that's very hard to do because of course you cannot anticipate how things are going to grow and change mm -hmm. in the future. But mm -hmm. I think another aspect of that is I think it's really important to try to get your design right to easily accommodate what you do know. And I can give you sort of a concrete example that I'm working on right now at GitHub. I work on the insights team. And basically what I spent all my time doing is moving data from location A to location B, where location A is like the GitHub monolithic um, you know, MySQL database and hosted inside internal GitHub infrastructure and location B is like this Azure data lake that things need to get to live in. So we know, right, that we have on offer, we need to ingest data for issues and repositories and users and like da da da, let's say it's a list of 20 things. So I want to try to pick a design now that makes it as easy as possible to light up the ingestion or sinking of those 20 known entities. That's not easy, but it's certainly easier. But I also want to pick a design where when we grow that list to the next 20 things that we can't anticipate right now, that we haven't backed ourselves into any corners. Absolutely. I love, I love that, that, that philosophy, like that sings that, that you, you spoke directly into the heart of me and like, right. I love that answer. What else, what, what do people think design is all about? What's, you know, any other competing interests? I would say it's also about designing enough for the problem at hand, right? Like for, for Sophie's case, I think that, you know, that, that definitely requires a good amount of design because it sounds like it's a long lived project versus, uh, you know, if I have like a side project, maybe it doesn't need a ton of over engineering or design. I can just, you know, get by with uh, with minimal effort. So I think it's, it's also uh, important to take into account how much do you need to design? How much do you need to worry about uh, future proofing? Because I mean, a lot of times, even at companies, some products are short lived and, um, you know, a company will, will secure a, uh, a contract. And then maybe a year later, that product was pretty much just for one customer and it's tossed away. So it's good to take into account how, what, what's the lifespan of this, of this uh, project? How much design do I need to put into it? And then, uh, you know, kind of take it from there. What do you feel like some of the hallmarks are of over design or early design? What do you feel like the trap there is? Like, how do you get stuck with that? Go, going for web scale from the, from the get-go. And, and when, and what are the, what are the symptoms of that look like? Right? Like you design too early, right? You know, quote unquote design, right? Like whatever that word means, right? You do some, yeah, yeah. you do some stuff and then you 
what are the symptoms, right, of, of a sort of over over complicating or over designing a, a system? So I, I'd say like um, a quick telltale would be if people are like reaching for caching and you literally have nobody using it. It's like, whoa, let's let's hold back and see. Yeah, let's monitor the system. Are are these calls actually taking too long to happen? Is it slow? Perhaps we just have you know bad indexes in the in the database. Um, you know, maybe you know there are other things we could reach for and adjust before you know trying to use that that magic uh, caching word and and uh, introducing additional complexity there. Right. Totally. So the in the caching example, right? One of the one of the one of the the the, the downsides to that is now you have one added a thing that potentially no one needs you've made it more complicated and less certain about where that data is coming from what the lifespan of it is you've coupled yourself to time because now all of a sudden which is the worst thing you could ever do because now all of a sudden uh when stuff gets into the cache versus when you read from the database well, i mean how do you reason about anything like it, it, you know, you, like now you're going to have an existential crisis about thinking about like what is time anymore, and like when do operations happen in race conditions and whatever, and caching and validation. Like you've added all this stuff for like no benefit, right? Um, and you've made it to getting back to that earlier point. You've made it harder to change things because it's just one more layer in the system that now you have to like like work around. Um, and if you realize that that caching is inhibiting your ability to be extensible to support new features, well, now you got to go back and like change it all. And oh man, like you, now you're really stuck. Yeah, I think that was that was one thing that came to mind when you were talking about like what's a symptom, a good symptom of knowing that something is over designed. And I don't think I don't think over designed is the right thing. I think like designed in the wrong direction, right? Like you designed for something and then you got punched in the face, and now you've got to pull everything out. Is high cost of change, right? High cost of change. You know, I, I think in Sophie's example, you're walking a very fine line because you're assuming that the change will be, uh, that the changes will come on this path, right? We're going to be sending more data to Azure. We're going to be sending this kind of data, but, you know, it could happen that there's a, you know, a different kind of data type, right? Some sort of like binary data that you're not set to, you know, uh, easily transfer over. And I, I think that that's a good sign of something being, um, again not over designed but incorrectly designed or using the wrong abstraction essentially absolutely um, oh sorry go ahead yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I, I, when, I, when i think about design a lot i think about it in sort of um two ways like the idea of like principles and then like overarching design right? like principles are the things that kind of bruce talked about right this is like separating pure functions from impure functions uh you know designing for pipelines and tokenization designing for testability right like actually how we the things we sort of do over time by default, right? These are just our principles and practices that lead to, sorry, Chris, the code that's easier to reason about, um, but also easier to sort of like build and compose, right? These are the benefits of our functional language and all the great things. Um, then I think there's like overarching design question is um, a decision better left for later, or at least until you sort of understand more, right? I, I think that the second design becomes a thing you reach for is when, again, that cost of change is high. Um, copy pasting, right? We all have the rule of three, um, where like, this is the third time I'm doing this. I have Now I have to kind of like extract this out. We have a, a number of, of sort of guiding principles there, but uh, the best the best thing is to, the best part is no 
part at all. It's sort of my philosophy on design. If I don't need it, if, if a, a fun name function will do, I will go with that. There's a point to where you can also under-design something. Clearly you can, I mean, you can, you can make a terrible hash of things if you really like to, but where for the caching example, for example, caching can be really painful to try to add if you've made some poor choices along the way, poor coupling between data or just not really working through. So you have decent layering in case you need to add something like caching. One of the signs I think about when I think about sort of over designing is when you start to generalize your system very early on. So it's like, oh, but we have all these fields, but maybe we want to add more fields in the future. Like, are those just database migrations or do we need a system for adding fields to entities? And now we have an entity system and now we have, and now we have, and it just swells in complexity. And uh, that's, that's a lot of what you'll see if you work with CMSs. Uh, then you get an abstract field factory and then you have right. a problem. <laughs> so I think the, the way I would summarize this is that we often find ourselves in a position where we would say something is maybe over-designed or designed in the wrong direction. When we attempt to predict the future about how our system is going to be used and we predict it incorrectly. No one ever thinks that we did a bad design when they guess right. That's, you know, total selection bias, right? Like we, we guess wrong. And the, the, the problem is we guess wrong most of the time because businesses change, features change, user, we get information from our users, especially if you're an early stage startup, you're already like sort of like rolling with the punches, you're deleting features, you're trying new stuff, right? So we have to be extensible. Um, I think the other side of that is a hallmark of over-design. What I would say is when you have to wade through multiple layers of the system in order to make any specific change. So if I have to update a form and that involves changing the form, the view, the controller, the context, the schema, some other file, like that speaks to what I think we would call bad design or potentially over design. Like we've tried to abstract something away that was not necessarily abstractable. We've tried to take some fundamental primitive and put it somewhere else. And that's not, and they're not actually separatable notions. So that's what I would say is like a, the, the hallmark of it, if I was going to distill it down. Um, which then the sort of the inverse of that is what's the goal of design in my mind? It's yes, one, to allow extensibility. And the way we do that is in the process called design. And what we're trying to do is hide complexity from people. We're trying to hide all of the complexity of the lower layers in every new layer that we build. I think the penultimate best example that I know of right now that you could point to is the network stack. When was the last time you cared about packets when you made an HTTP call? Actually, furthermore, when was the last time you cared about TCP? when you made an HTTP call, right? If you're you're dumb like me and you work on an HTTP library, it's all the time. But like, ideally speaking, you never care. 
you never care about TCP because it's always totally thinking about that from you. Level. Right? Yeah, level. exactly. So you you never care about the layer below you because all of the necessary complexity has been hidden from you, and it has removed your need, your desire to care about it. What can we what can we glean from that if we if we accept this as a premise like that if we accept that that is a good design that that's something that we should strive for what can we glean from it well what it what it what it implies is that actual complexity the complexity that you deal with in your system on a daily basis is a multiplier of actual complexity the actual difficult necessary to understand things that you should put in your head multiplied by the number of times during a day you actually have to care about it. And if you can drop that second value to zero, you eliminate complexity and you eliminate it by hiding it. I think this is a really, really crucial thing to agree to like to like if we don't agree on this, then we should, you know, then, then that there, there's no room to go forward in this conversation right like we have to sort of agree on that so could we for the time being accept that as the as the goal of design. Is hiding um, complexity. I think this conversation is over. And that's where <laughs> this is where we cut the cut the cord. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that makes me curious about something you've you've touched on that I think relates quite closely to to the contexts conversation, uh, where you've talked a lot about leaving sort of decisions to the call site, which in mm -hmm. many cases would be a controller. Mm -hmm. And how sort of contexts as they're generated, not necessarily as they could be, but as they are generated, also sort of expose Ecto to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm guessing that's where, where you see that they don't necessarily hide that complexity of Ecto. Yeah, and, so yeah. that's definitely the inverse, right? Is if you have a layer in the system and it is and it does not sufficiently hide the complexity below it, and you have to go into that layer whenever you need to make changes and you're constantly interacting with it, that layer should not exist. That layer is false. It is adding to your burden. So every layer of the system needs to be somewhat reusable. It needs to be mostly general. And as you go higher up in the stack, things become less and less general and more and more concrete and specific. So that is the hallmark of, of, good, of, of a good design in my, in my estimation. What that necessarily means, and this is the context thing, and this is why I, you know, it's like it takes 20 minutes to talk about what design means for me to explain why I don't like context. Contexts do not hide any of the complexity inside of them. They are not generally reusable. And for our listeners, uh, boil down a couple of examples. Here, sure. Um, on on things that aren't hidden. Sure. So Ecto generally, the problem is Phoenix, Phoenix Forms, Phoenix Controllers, Phoenix Fuse. They know about Ecto, and they assume and you're talking specifically about Ecto change sets, correct? Ecto change sets and Ecto schemas in a lot of cases, but mostly change sets. They know about that, that stuff. They understand it, and you have to return it. There's no hiding it in the context. Like you, you can't hide Ecto at the end of the day. And you can't hide the schema. You got to know about the schema at some point. And you got to know what it is you're interacting with. 
And that's the call site. The call site's the only place that actually knows all the information. And like, it'll work for trivial things. But the minute that you need to do anything that's performance intensive, where you need to write an actual query, where you're like, I actually want to do the explicit join here, and I need to do the select statement. Well, then your context breaks down if what you're trying to hide inside of it is the entirety of the ecto query, the entirety of the repo call, and all of the error management around that. It just doesn't scale out. And there's been many times, like when we were at Bleach Report, we tried this. We tried to use context as generated, and we couldn't do it because what we ended up with is this giant proliferation of functions that all did exactly one thing for one use case. And if you have one function that's used for one use case in exactly one call site, that function shouldn't exist. Like, why do you have that function? Delete that function. Like, like it's not buying you anything except overhead and cognitive load. So, yeah, like a lot of this stems from the fact that I think in general, we're not really hiding away the complexity. We're not really hiding it because if you need to change something or tune something at a, at a controller level, and you're finding yourself going back into the context to do it. Well, why, why do you have the context? It's not, I mean, and it, it, and what people will cite is often like, I think arguments that are really not about context, they're like, well, it's easier to test. And it's like, why? Well, that's, that's not the context that's Phoenix's fault, or maybe it's not even Phoenix's fault. It's like, maybe it's, maybe that's MVC's fault. <laughs> like maybe we shouldn't be using MVC at all. Maybe MVC has never been a good pattern. Um, and it's like led us to like really poor designs because controllers are inherently not reusable like as a as a construct. Like they're like intentionally they're not reusable. That's like the point hardcore, of hardcore <laughs> heresy right here. Yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get some letters. That's yeah. well, you just redirect them to me, it's fine. Uh <laughs> But yeah, so like that's, I think for me, it's like, that's the, that's where context starts to break down. Like if we accept that the point of design is to build more and more generally reusable things, then context start to like fall short of that because they're not generally reusable in a wide range of con in a wide range of, of use cases. Um, and there's the arguments about like, well, if you have like background jobs, you could do all this stuff, but more often than not, you're going to find yourself finding all the different ways that they don't compose together anymore. Um, because, you know, it's like, well, in this case, we're talking to the primary database, but we actually need to be talking to the replica database because we want to take load off the primary database. And now we've got to juggle that. Who gets to determine which one of those things we use? Well, it's really the call site that is the only place that knows which one it ought to use, but now we've hidden it away inside of some other function somewhere. So now we got to pass what? An options list to determine like, oh, actually, in this case, use the select and also do this join and do a preload but and use the primary over here but in this case do a replica thing and it's like what at what point did you just reinvent ecto queries but poorly like like you know i don't i don't see the margin there it's and never been there for me. things like that right so that's that's like a symptom of this this whole problem right oh graphql i mean graphql is like a thousand different problems graphql is a mess man like like at a fundamental level, there's like three good things in GraphQL and then like 10 really bad ideas. And like, but it's it kind not of a unified to, front. But it yeah. kind of exists to, to snap into this this layer, right? That um, there's this it kind of exists to kind of assuming a model view controller um, where the model is kind of broken out with a, the with a context. Um, it's kind of dealing with that particular pattern. How to, assuming that pattern, how do we, how, how does data flow through the system, right? 
Right. And actually, that is the interesting thing about GraphQL. The, the brilliant and really good idea, and the thing that we should all glean from it, is that like there is huge power in giving control back to the call site. Who's the call site in this case? It's the client. Who knows the most about what they should render? The client. So give them power to render what they need to render. That is the brilliant idea of, not even brilliant, but it's just like that's the, the obvious outcome of this kind of thinking, right? It's like you, of course, would land at GraphQL because who else can make the choices that you need to make? It's the client. And in the same way, if you're doing something in a controller, for instance, or in a, you know, a live view component or whatever, who else is better to make that decision than the call site? Yeah, and and I can see I could see um, where where these these particular heresies came from, right? And um, my particular use cases contexts have actually worked pretty well for me because I'm not dealing with with problems at the same scale. Um, and you know, that's this this pertain this basic pattern um, seems to work pretty well. I think so, I and I think it's it's also. A combination of, of it's a combination of scale. The, okay, so the, the interesting thing about Bleacher Report is we had a lot of traffic, and we naturally had to support that amount of traffic. When you have to support that amount of traffic, you have to care about things like how many times you go into the database. You can't hide your database calls because like that's the easiest way to trick yourself into thinking you're doing something efficient when you're not, and you and you call it good design, and then you're like, uh, you know, that's that's like the easiest way to like really get in bad shape. And often, and often too, we're having to do very specific queries that are optimized for that use case, that sort of stuff. So we've stumbled into this pattern and then realized like, oh, actually like we can build systems with way less code. And when that thing is like not great or we need to fix a thing, you just go fix the thing. And you don't worry about like, did all the other tests fail? Because like, it's just the one controller action that you care about. So we sort of fell backwards into it. And this is where a lot of this came from for me. It's like, I think these are actually just good general ideas. Um, and maybe the problem isn't context and controllers and all this stuff. Maybe the problem is the, the, the initial premise, which is that MVC is useful. Yeah, the pattern that it's all based on, right? Yeah. So this is kind of in the same, like the same vein as like, you know, monoliths are, are cool again. And, you know, maybe we should go back to you know, not having super fat controllers, but maybe, you know, some, some slightly bigger controllers that are more highly specialized that, as opposed to trying to overly abstract too soon. Is that kind of what I'm taking away from this? I think so. I think, I mean, I mean, monoliths or, or whatever, right? Like you're still going to have to build tooling, right? To support all that sort of stuff. And like model, I mean, here's the thing, the services at the end of the day, here's why you do services. Uh, because you have too many developers. That's the only reason to ever do services. Um, and it's the only reason that ever works. It's, I've got a ton of people, I need them to all work without stomping all over each other the, constantly. So I'm just going to divide them up and let Conway's Law sort it out. Like, that's, that's the point of doing services is to like, decouple all your teams, so they don't have to talk to each other anymore. Um, because you only get like, if you have like, 10 teams and you all need to agree on something like you get two of those a year maybe where you all can agree on something and not grind to a halt because if you have to coordinate across teams well guess what coordination is where all your productivity dies so uh, like because you're having to get everybody in a room and that meeting just cost you a hundred thousand dollars and like you know all this sort of stuff so it's like 
that doesn't work. The way it works is you divide up the teams in the way that you want your system to work. And then you just say, build whatever services that you want. And here's the interface to it. It's going to be, I don't know, uh, gRPC or twerp or whatever. It's going to be some sort of proto buff, I'm sure. And we're all going to just agree on like how that should work. And we're going to talk to each other with these wires. And then we don't have to talk to each other anymore because it's taking too much time to talk to each other. We just have to agree on these things and move forward. That's how you end up with services. So I think any other argument about why or when to use services is is bunk. Like it's not real. You do it for for people reasons. Yeah, I think there was this this prevalent idea that services provided a lot of sort of granular horizontal scalability. And I think there's there's a touch of truth there for languages that that really need more processes to to perform well. Uh, just uh, at the OS level, the Beam and Elixir don't really don't really work like that. And I think breaking up your your application into services that always strikes me as a as a people management problem. But the thing you brought up, Bruce, with like context that worked pretty well for you at your scale, I'm thinking there there's two kinds of scale there. One is it's not high volume performance, heavy load, that sort of thing. And it's probably not huge code bases where there's a lot of code to manage. So some of the some of the challenges of building these extra layers just don't show up. Right, right, right. And and I, I completely agree with that. So I would say I would say there are three, right? There's the code base itself. There's the um there's the 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 volume and the distributed systems nature, um, and then there's the the small teams, right? Um, all three of those things. I I, um, I try to avoid problems um, with with very large teams because I, I don't tend to thrive in them. So so I try to you know try to find big problems, small teams, right? That's kind of kind of my focus. Yeah, that resonates with me. That's that's pretty much my approach as well. If I need to manage sort of, if I need to wrangle more than five devs to keep some sort of agreement, it's just not worth it, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And so we we have different kind of approaches to handling the same problems. Um. So Chris, I I also wanted to get to another couple of um, interesting discussions, but one of the ones, um, one of the things that you mentioned before coming on the show is that we might be misusing behaviors. And that was a fascinating concept to me. Um, you wanna um, lay out the argument? Sure. So uh, in Elixir, we have, uh, well, really three distinct ways of, of handling what I'll call generally polymorphism, right? The, uh, the idea that you can uh, substitute out various pieces of your system. Uh, one is called data and functions, and uh, that's the best way. But the other two are called behaviors and the other and protocols. In general, behaviors uh, get used a lot. And the way behaviors work are you have a module, you define a bunch of callbacks, um, and they're called callback for a reason, which we're going to touch on in just a second. Uh, but you define a bunch of callbacks, which are the functions that another module needs to implement. Um, the best example of this is a gin server, right? Gin servers are a behavior. You have to handle init, handle cast, handle call, handle info, shutdown, et cetera. So 
you have to be able to handle all those things. They all have certain specific rarities that you have to conform to, and they have to return certain things in order for them to work correctly. And that's part of the contract that you're going to establish. And that's how a behavior works. Um, they're attached to modules. That's really important. And modules are named things that you can pass around. I know this is shocking, everyone. But yes, you can pass module names around, and it behooves you to do so. So you can, uh, you can use them for that sort of stuff. Gen servers are great, right? Like, when was the last time you cared about how a gen server actually works? Uh, it's almost never, <laughs> right? In my experience, it's like, I know I have handle call, I know I have handle cast, I handle, I do my stuff, it all works out. And it's because behaviors are a way to describe, in my opinion, internals of a, of a piece of machinery. In many ways, behaviors, uh, to, to use that sort of old adage that about uh, a framework is something that you plug into and a library is something that you use, behaviors are a framework they're not Conversion a version of control right yeah you're you're handing off a you take a specific thing which is your implementation of the behavior and you hand it to a piece of machinery which is the abstract thing hence the gen server example but the unfortunate thing is i see a ton of people uh, well i don't see people i see i've seen a lot of elixir in my life at this point and I'm seeing behaviors used and what they're being used for is public interfaces to uh, some sort of generic idea. I think that's probably wrong. I think, and this is not an original idea to me. This is something that uh, Quinn kicked off um, that, I, that I've just like, it's been in my brain uh, since she said it because I'm like, oh wow, this rings so true to me. I think there's a reason that the behaviors that are in OTP are all things that you have to plug into. There is no behavior that describes how you send messages to a gen server. That's not what you're defining. And yet, I think a lot of us use them that way. I think a lot of Elixir that I've seen written uses behaviors as public interfaces to some sort of underlying thing. For instance, like an HTTP client or a database thing or some sort of external, you know, uh, like I'm calling an API somewhere, that sort of stuff. I think that that's probably incorrect because behaviors by by their very nature have to understand both sides of the equation. They have to understand the machinery that they're plugging into in order to be truly, really usable. Um, especially because you're going to end up with a whole bunch of boilerplate functions to support all that sort of like swapping out the behavior thing. I think that's probably wrong. Yeah, Why would yeah. So let me let me slow things down for just a little bit. So let's talk about the three elements. So you said that there are three mechanisms. The first one is the function, and we're probably talking about pattern matching and um, and just dispatch, right? Mm -hmm. Functional mm -hmm. dispatch, right? Or passing functions I mean, around. Yeah, yeah, passing functions around, um, which is also another way to do inversion of control, right? Um, but the first, the first example, you might have an animal with a type, and if it's a dog, it says you know you match the the type, and it says um, arf, and if it, it's a cat, it says meow, right? And so the second type is a protocol, and the protocol you you essentially have a, a, a particular type and a particular function, and and then you you um, register an implementation um, with the compiler, and then Elixir picks the implementation based on the the type of the module and that's that's a um that's essentially a protocol and and a behavior is is code that somebody else writes 
And um, so they write the program and call back in, into our code, which, which is why this thing is called a callback. And this is basically Erlang's implementation of um, inversion control, right? It's a, um, you know, gosh, I'd get myself in trouble by saying this was um, just dependency injection for processes, but, but kind of, yeah. No, that's what it is. I mean, the yeah. best dependency injection is passing arguments to functions. Like, you know, that's, that's, I love that yeah. version of dependency injection. And, and that sort of inversion of control is exactly what you want. If, if you want to take apart the thing that is truly reusable and then separate it out from the very specific parts. Yeah. So you're saying, so you're, you're basically saying two things that the first thing is that behaviors are overused. And the second thing that you're saying is that um, there are implementations, um, even when we want to do inversion of control, where we can pass functions to get the the same the same type of um, behavior. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Bad, like bad in pun your, included. No, no, in, exactly. In your example, right? If you've got dogs and you got cats, and you've got an arf function, what if your arf function just takes another function and calls it, and passes it some arguments? Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. That's that's the best dependency injection that's ever been invented. Is just you know passing functions to other functions. It's it's the best, right? And there's performance implications of that because you're carrying around a stack and all that sort of stuff. And so maybe you want to pass an MFA or whatever. But like you know, or a module name. In which case, you're back in behavior land. But um, yeah, no, like that's that's totally great, and it's totally inversion of control for processes, right? You're abstracting away the thing, and you're giving control back to the to the call site. This is a recurring theme. In good design, and it's at least in my estimation. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and so I, I wanted want to talk about one last thing because it's some something that our listeners or, or our earlier podcasts have talked about. That's the um, that's the norm library. Could you tell us a little bit about norm? Sure. So uh, I am a huge dynamic typing apologist. I believe um, you know. People who are all like, I can't prove that it works unless I can compile it don't understand the nature of running systems and how you actually build reliable running systems because guess what. Uh, the world isn't compilable and you can't prove a thing works one time and I don't know that mindset doesn't work for me when I talk about building things that are resilient. Um, so I. That said there's huge benefits to being able to uh, supply contracts to your users. Uh, to the by users, I mean the other people who are using your code. It's a great way to communicate. It's a great way to apply uh, resiliency, um, not resiliency in this case, but I guess uh, some version of correctness. And uh, I believe that until Idris becomes an even bigger deal than it is, the best way we have to do that is by calling functions. We have mechanisms to call functions. We should do that. So. Norm was built out of a desire to specify data flowing through the system and do it in an ad hoc, totally extensible way that allows anyone to sort of opt into this idea, allows you to specify, hey, inputs, outputs of this function, and, uh, and, and to be able to talk about the actual domain and range of your functions. That's a really, really useful thing. And to talk about them in specific ways, not like it's a number, like, but like be like, it's a number between zero and 255, it can't be negative, And we should be able to like actually say, and also it can't ever be 42 or whatever, like whatever your number, whatever the, the prerequisites of the thing are. 
You should also be able to like specify side effects. You should be able to say like, hey, after this function is called, stuff should be in the database. And like, you should be able to verify that. That's awesome. If we have that power, we can now talk about building something that's like infinitely better than types, like way more better than types. And people are always, always like, well, how do you test? You know, testing is really hard and stuff. Well, now you wanna know how you test it. You just call the function and like your, and your contracts verify all the stuff. So Norm was built out of this, this desire for me to showcase uh, what it would be like if we could use runtime to actually verify all this stuff and to have a really rich set of language to talk about data. Because I think data is so important in the work that we're doing. Um, it's also not attached to names. So many type things are attached to names. I don't understand this. You don't want that. That's like not useful unless what you want is a giant proliferation of types that like, and, and, and just, you know, if you want the constant like uh, Java convert to JSON object that only exists in order to convert it to JSON. It's like, that's not that, no, that's not what we want. And only in one context, names. right? <laughs> right. You want you want to be able to reuse all this stuff and get maximal power out of it. So Norm was built out of that idea. Um, it provides a very small, relatively small set of functions that you can use to specify data. And then internally, it's all built on protocols. So we have various protocols or we have like, I think, three protocols total. And when you add a new construct, you just add a new struct and you have it implement those three protocols and then it all composes and just works and also those protocols are open so if you have stuff that you want to just build you can also opt into that and so that's how that's how that library works and i think that um the vision of that right this this idea that we could just specify all this stuff and it would just sort of flow out of it um is really really cool and i think uh I would say Quinn is probably the person who most got it. <laughs> like when I sort of talked about it, she, cause she did it. She built the thing that I had always wanted to see, which is that she built sort of end to end contracts. And then part of opting into norm is you get generators out of them for property-based testing. And then she used them for both like development purposes. So you, you know, could mock out uh, API calls and other downstream things, and then also use them internally. And, and it just all like worked. And she could just like property-based test the entire system that way. And it was all generated for free, for the most part, generated for free. Um, I think, and, and verifiable. And I think that was, that's probably the closest I've seen to like, that was the dream. That was what I hoped people would take away from it. Yeah, and I think this is really good in a, um, a conversation about heresy because it really, really came out of a, um, a thorough examination of how we, how we think about types in Elixir and um, and kind of going through the the pain of of the tooling that was available, and um, and then kind of discarding some of those ideas that didn't work for you and your projects, and laying out an alternative instead, and a pretty brilliant one, if I if I um, if I could be honest, um, and that kind of talks about the runtime preconditions for for a particular piece of data, which is which is really really cool. And super powerful, and um, and something that fits more in the Zen of of Elixir, um, and and really frankly, Erlang development as well of, of Beam development. So, thanks for that. I wish we had time to go in deeper, but um, we'll we'll have another conversation soon. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk more about this stuff, as is evidence at this point. I I get so excited about this. I love one. I, I just 
I thrive on and, and crave these kinds of conversations of like, how can we not like make, you know, how can we not take rails and make it just a little bit better or something? Like, how can we not make just improve our lives just a little bit? How do we take an order of magnitude, jump into the future of what software development could look like? That's what I'm interested in. That's a fantastic note to end it on. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Thank you, Bruce. Also, thank you to our sponsor, Graxia, which is Career Fuel for Programmers. And we will catch you guys next time on Beam Radio. Sweet. Thanks, Chris. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I can, I can hear you rant forever. So fun.